This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. This is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. That's the first time I've said that. It sounded very exciting. Ooh. I'm here with Dory Shafrir. I pronounced your name correctly. Very good. I'm so proud. <laughs> Dory does many cool things. She's a podcaster. She's a writer at BuzzFeed. Most importantly, for the purpose of this podcast today, she's the author of a new novel, Startup. Go buy Startup immediately. Stop listening to this podcast. Go buy Startup and come listen to the rest of the podcast. Have we promoted that adequately? Oh, that was great. Thank you. Awesome. We're done. Oh, all right. See ya. Dory, do you want to tell us what Startup is about? Sure. It's so, about startups. Yes. It takes place in the New York tech world in the present day, and it focuses on a 28-year-old startup founder named Mac McAllister, who has a mindfulness app called Takeoff, and he gets kind of caught up in a, in a little scandal, and there's a 24-year-old ambitious young woman reporter named Katya Pasternak who uncovers the scandal and writes about it. Um, And then the third person whose perspective it's told from is a woman named Sabrina who works for Mac and also happens to be married to Katya's boss. It's a satire about Silicon Valley that's actually set in New York. So it's about New York tech Mm -hmm. media, modern day 2017. There are accidental sex via Snapchat. Yes. It's great. I read it. You guys should go read it. It's your first book, right? Yeah, it's my first novel. Congrats. Thank you. And you've got a day job writing at BuzzFeed. I do. How long did this thing take to write? Um, I started it in January 2015, and we sold it on a partial manuscript in November of that year. And then I had until June 1st uh, to finish it, and I turned it in on June 1st. While you had a day job? Yes. I took two months off of BuzzFeed, um, you know, unpaid book leave to work on it. But I, I wrote a lot of it in like mornings and weekends. So you work at a big digital publishing company, you mm-hmm. write a story about a big digital publishing company. When you told the people at BuzzFeed, hey, I'm going to take time off and, and write a book that's kind of a satire about the place I work, what was the reaction? Well, it's not a satire about the place I work. No, um, but there's a lot of... There's a lot of BuzzFeedy stuff in here. Yeah, there's some BuzzFeedy stuff in there. Um, I mean, I do, I honestly do see it kind of more broadly as a satire of the whole kind of startup world. Yeah. Um, although my boss, Ben Smith, was like, ooh, is this a, you know. Is it a Ramana Is Clef? this a Ramana Clef? And I think he was actually slightly disappointed when I said no. <laughs> you that, know, that you weren't identifying specific venture capitalists or. Yeah, or like he wasn't a thinly veiled character <laughs> in the book or, you know. He should be lucky that he's not a vin- thinly veiled because know. every dude in this book is kind of an asshole. Yeah. Someone, uh, Posted on Goodreads. Roxanne Gay wrote a very nice Goodreads review where she said, all the men in this book are trash. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) asshole trash. There's a creepy, middle-aged, fake supportive editor with two kids in Brooklyn. Yeah. That that one worried me a bit. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So why why write a startup Silicon Valley book that's set in New York? Well, there's one – the kind of primary, very simple reason is that I lived. I live in LA now, but I lived in New York for about nine years, and I've I worked at startups. I work at a place that, for a very long time, considered itself a startup. Um, I've written about startups. You know, I wrote a cover story in New York Magazine like seven years ago. That was kind of the first like, hey, New York has this real startup scene post bubble 1.0. Um, Piece and so, and I've always been kind of like startup adjacent, so I felt very familiar so with this. So, this is right about what you know. This is a real kind of right what you know book. Um, and I, I really don't have firsthand familiarity with Silicon Valley. The other thing is, there's been a lot of stuff set in Silicon Valley. I mean, the circle, which 
is a book and now is about to be a movie. Um, the show Silicon Valley. I yeah. mean, there's just, there's a ton of stuff. Like, I, I felt like Silicon Valley has been kind of pretty well trod. It's funny. If you write about Silicon Valley, whether or not you are writing about Silicon Valley and whether or not you're from there, you get a lot of bristly people saying, this is not our culture. You don't understand it. You're an outsider. So yeah. here you don't have that problem. Exactly. Because you're very much New York <laughs> And this is the kind of book, right, that you could have written 20 years ago and it would have been said in Condé Nast. Totally. I imagine some of the characters sort of move around and the you know, different technology, but same ideas. Yeah, Young people striving in New York. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because I actually did have this thought as I was writing it that like, oh, so many of these kind of like coming of age in New York professional world stories have been set in the magazine or publishing worlds. Um, and that felt a little dated to me. Yeah, they wouldn't have jobs. Right. And, you know, I don't think that many 22-year-olds graduating college these days I don't I'm sure a few of them have this dream but they want to go work at Vogue still yeah like maybe they want to go work at Vogue.com but the the dream of working at a print publication I, I feel it felt very dated to me so that was another important thing like Katya works at a tech site she doesn't work at Newsweek Beyond having lived this, how much research did you do to make sure that you were getting the app correct? Or do you just, or is it just you work at BuzzFeed so this just comes come through your pores via osmosis? No, you know, Katya's stuff was like pretty much osmosis because she's a journalist and she's a digital journalist. And I felt like I knew that world pretty well. Um, but Mac, you know, a third of the book is told from his perspective. And it was really important to me that he feel authentic and also three-dimensional. So if you're a hot shit 26-year-old startup guy whose startup actually hasn't really taken off, but everyone thinks you're going to take off, what does life look like for you? Yeah. I mean, that was that was kind of what I was trying to right. get at. And so I did interview about a dozen company founders, men and women, um, and some women who were kind of startup adjacent um, on background, and they they gave me a lot of good stuff that I feel like informed the book in a in a way that made it a lot better. And so, without spoiling too much, one of the big plot points here is that he's uh, the the hot shit startup guy is sleeping with one of his employees. It's clearly a stupid idea. Um, when you're reading it, you go, "Boy, that's a really dumb thing to do." And and you would think that someone would know that at this point. Did anyone go, hey, no one would be that dumb. No one that smart and self-aware to create a startup in 2017 would be would be having sex with his marketing person. Uh, no, because it keeps happening. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you know, sadly, a lot of that stuff has, it is, you know, it has happened and it, it keeps happening. You know, I think part of it is like when you start, so in my book, Max started his company when he was like 25. So he, you know, he had worked some before that, but... He had never really been a boss. He certainly was never educated in the right way to be a boss. And he's 28. He's horny. He has a hot employee. He's like, meh, mm-hmm. this is convenient. Yep. <laughs> so without stopping for a second to think about what the consequences of that might be. So that part of the book I read got skewed out, but it was okay because that's not okay, my life. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. The part of the book with the older employee going to work at the startup and she's mm-hmm. not really sure mm-hmm. what a Snapchat is, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. she figures it out because actually yeah. it's not that difficult. Sure. But she's clearly much older than the people she's working with and yeah. there's that whole discussion about what constitutes old. I think she's 36. She's 36, yes. That struck a little close to home. 
Sorry. Um, it gave me some anxiety. You're the second author I've had coming in to write a Silicon Valley book. Not set in Silicon Valley. This was uh, Dan Lyons did. Oh, yeah, sure. And that the whole theme of that is yeah, what's yeah, like yeah. a 50-year-old right, startup. Right, right. But it's something you keep going back to over and over. So yeah. it's like to age out of that world. Yeah. How much time do you spend thinking about that yourself? You know, I do think about it a fair amount. Because BuzzFeed's a very Logan's run sort of operation. Yeah, I mean, BuzzFeed... I don't know what the average age is, but it feels very young. Um, there's a t- there's a lot of people in their 20s. There's a lot of people who have never had full-time jobs before. Um, and that really does inform the culture. Um, and as someone in her 30s that has, you know, I, I see that and I and I I see it from a distance. I don't really participate in a lot of the group activities. I mean, there's a there's a part in the book where Sabrina, who's the 36-year-old, gets um, an email that gets sent out to the entire company inviting them to a pole dancing workshop. And everyone kind of immediately responds with like, I'm so psyched for this and like animated GIFs and, you know, inside jokes. And she's just like, what the hell? Um, And so- My version of that, they had an 80s themed happy hour recently. Right. And you're Which like, I was like, well, that's fine. But then there was like a whole discussion of here are some appropriate things you could wear if you want to know what that. And they were just sent out pictures showing what the 80s looked like. I'm like, oh. Right. Because they were either like five or they weren't born. Yeah. And so, yeah. So that kind of happens a lot, especially with pop culture references at BuzzFeed. Like someone will say something and you're like, oh, yeah, I was in my late 20s when that came out. And they're like, oh, I was in middle school. Um, but no, it is the kind of the group activity thing is something that I find kind of amusingly alien, um, and just something that was not a part of work life in the past. I think in yeah, the same way, I think it was unorganized, right? You yeah. just went drinking, you just and went there drinking. Wasn't an email, and, and a lot of the same things happened, right? You just didn't, yes, there, it wasn't part of a culture. It wasn't as, I mean, <laughs> I feel like we as a generation were not as enthusiastic as this generation. Um, and so they kind of approach everything with this like wide-eyed enthusiasm. It's all been up and to the right too. I think about that a lot, right? No one's no one's gone through a downturn. No one's seen extensive layoffs. No totally. No shit not work. And if it doesn't work, you just do the next thing and everyone, it's great. It's great to be part of a positive culture like that. Yes. Keep waiting for like, things to get wobbly. You know, it's funny because I remember in 2008, I worked at the New York Observer and we, before, (laughs) to be fair, this was before we realized kind of just how bad things were, but we did this big story called Crash Virgins about people who had never been through a crash before. And it was the same kind of thing. Like all these people, even though the last recession had not been that long ago, the people who had just graduated college and gotten these like hotshot jobs were sort of like, what is happening? They felt completely confused. Um, and a lot of them had gotten laid off. And, you know, in my mind, that wasn't that long ago. But for a lot of the people I work with, you know, if they graduated college in 2014, they weren't even in high school when this happened, right? No, they were in high school. But they, like, they probably didn't kind of absorb what was going on. No, just the way I didn't pay attention to the stock crash of exactly. 1987. Right, exactly. Um, so... Yeah, you definitely, you know, you you hear some of the things that they say or just the expectations that they have that this is going to last forever. Has anyone come back to you and they've read Startup, which you should be purchasing right now as yes. we speak, and they have said, listen, I'm in this world. You got this wrong. This thing would never happen. The VC would never say that to the CEO. So far, no. I am sure something like that no will happen. No one's fact-checked you yet. No, but uh, the... 
<laughs> it's actually Jenny Eight Lee <laughs> read. She got her hands on a galley, and she uh, former New York Times person, former New York, re- yes, startup person, and she tweeted at me and she said I had gotten something I forget what the exact detail was but it was something with the term sheet that uh-huh. Matt gets she said you got this wrong and we started DMing and and I was like oh can you explain to me and she was very kind and explained the whole thing to me and and I was like you know what she is literally the only person who has noticed this. Was it a this. post-money valuation thing? It was, a, it was like, a, yeah, <laughs> oh, you have the galley. Yeah. yeah, so that mistake is in there. But in the final version, I had them take it out. Because you got crowdsourced fact-checking. Yes. Great. And I said, you know what? Let's not even correct this exact detail. Let's just take out this line. And I don't think anyone is going to care or notice, but they will notice if I got it wrong. And fortunately, I was able to catch it in time. But yes, Jenny A. Lee. Uh, Shout out to Jenny A. Lee. Yes, thank you, Jenny A. Lee. I, I was like, oh, I should have added her to the acknowledgments. <laughs> I have more book questions for you. But first, I want to hear from some of our fine advertisers. So we'll be right back. Today's show is brought to you by The Art of Shaving. You know these guys. These are the guys who have the awesome shaving stores where you go get yourself a shave with a straight razor at a mall, at a store. Maybe you've got one of these gift certificates from a relative for Christmas. I got one of those. They're great. They've been doing this since 1996 when they were founded in New York. They've been helping guys look their best for more than 20 years. And if you like getting shaved or the art of shaving, you can do this at home with awesome art of shaving products. Shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance, if you roll that way. Their award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. Here are the four elements of the perfect shave. You can prep your skin with their signature pre-shave oil. You create a thick, foamy lather. With shaving cream, you apply with a shave brush. The old-fashioned shave brush is very cool. You shave, you replenish the moisture with aftershave balm. This is all great stuff. It feels great. It's tingly skin feeling. You feel sort of special after you use Art of Shave products. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service. That's a fancy word for saying they will deliver this stuff to your house. It allows you to save on your products. They come right to you. Very easy. If you want to buy this stuff, go to artofshaving.com and you can get 15% off your first order and free shipping using the promo code MEDIA. Get it? Use the promo code MEDIA at artofshaving.com. You get 15% off your first order and free shipping. One more time, to get the offer that's free shipping and 15% off, go to artofshaving.com. Use the promo code MEDIA. Thank you, Art of Shaving. Today's show is also brought to you by Willis Towers Watson. Cybersecurity is one of the greatest threats any business faces. Regular people, too, but this is for executives, people who run companies. Last year, more than 400 million new malware threats are released, and more than half a billion personal records are breached. Businesses spend $100 billion a year on cyber technology, but cybersecurity is as much about employee behaviors as it is tech. The average network breach can cost you $4 million in company losses, and that's why Willis Towers Watson is here. They understand that the only comprehensive approach to cybersecurity is to deal with it all, your people, your capital, and your technology risks. Willis Towers Watson decodes all that complexity through a comprehensive three-stage approach. They thoroughly assess the cyber risks throughout your business, they protect your company with best-in-class solutions, and they improve your ability to recover from future attacks. You can learn more about what Willis Towers Watson can do for your business by going to willistowerswatson.com slash recode. That's how they'll know you listen to this ad. willistowerswatson.com slash recode. Today's show is also brought to you by HostGator. Are you ready to take your website to the next level? If you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. 
And if you ever need a boost in hosting power, HostGator offers cloud, VPS, and dedicated server hosting that can easily handle maximum visitor traffic. See what HostGator can do for your website. Right now, Recode listeners will get 60% off. That's 6 Go to HostGator.com slash Recode. That's HostGator spelled like an alligator, G-A-T-O-R dot com slash Recode. Uh, this is Recode Media. We're back here with Dory Shafir, who has written a new book called... Startup. Go buy it immediately. Speaking of buying things and books, walk through how you go about marketing a book in, in 2017. Who does that work? Yeah. I reached out to you only a long time ago yeah. when I saw you wrote this. But you're doing promotions. Who does mm-hmm. that in 2017? Do you do that? Do your publisher do it? So it's a com- for me, it's been a combination. Um, I am fortunate in that, you know, I worked in media or I, I, you know, I still work in media, but I've worked in media for a long time. So I do know a lot of people who I've not been shy about hitting up for (laughs) requests to be covered or interviewed. But is that the expectation that the author does the work themselves? I mean, I know a lot of folks have a publicist or the publisher's a publicist. It seems like that person is probably either not good at their job or more charitably overloaded and can't do a lot. You know, that has honestly not been my experience. Um, I have two publicists and an assistant at Little Brown who have been helping me uh, thus far. The expectation is certainly that the author will use every connection that they possibly have. Um, and I have done that. Did you provide a marketing plan when you sold the book? I know some people would do that as part of the pitch. and say, here's how I'm going to actually sell this thing that I have yet to write. Yeah. You know, I feel like that is often used more in nonfiction. Um but we certainly, my agent certainly pitched it like Buzz, she works at BuzzFeed. She's very familiar with this world. This is how you can kind of position it. Um, and I think that resonated for sure. And, you know, I have, I've booked a bunch of stuff on my own, particularly podcasts. That seems to be an area where publishers are not totally, they figured it out yet. yeah, they're not totally conversant in it yet. They're like starting to get it. They're not quite there yet. It's funny. I'm assuming that the podcast crowd is going to be some of your best sort of like listen to purchase yes. ratio because of people who are engaged and involved and podcasts are great and you should advertise on them. Yes. As opposed to a random hit on a TV show. Yes. Uh, well, TV supposedly actually sells books. Because it's TV's huge, right? Yes. But, but sort I think of it's more capita. like the random hit on like the literary blog is prestigious, right. but probably doesn't actually sell that many books. So... Yeah, my husband and I have a podcast called Matt and Dory's Excellent Adventure where we talk about our attempts to make a baby um, using IVF. Um, this, these are all real things. This is, this is, this is, you are actually doing it. Oh, podcast. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I'm yeah. actually doing this. and It's great. You should go listen to thank it. Thank you. Uh, so... We started the podcast because we felt like there was a need for it, but then it kind of turned into also a book marketing vehicle. Um, and we we set a goal for our listeners. We said if you if you if we get a thousand pre-orders, we will do a bonus episode. And we got a thousand pre-orders. And then we said if we get fifteen hundred pre-orders, we'll do a second bonus episode. And as of Monday, we had gotten the fifteen hundred. So that's what I was listening pre-orders. to today was the second bonus episode, I guess. Uh Whatever no, you were listening to just a regular episode. Okay. Yeah. So we did a bonus episode last week. So, you know, that was kind of fun. And you're right. I mean, I think podcast listeners are much more loyal. Um, we also got a nice bump. My husband is on the Nerdist podcast, which has a very large audience, yes. and I was on it last week. Um, and that, I know, also helped us. And you've got your own personal newsletter. Did you start that sort of with the notion this would be a book vehicle at some point? No, I started that bef- much 
before, I actually started that before the book, but I'd been kind of inconsistent about it. And once I knew the book was coming, I started being more consistent and pushing it. And that definitely helped. I think I actually get a lot of engagement on Instagram. That is where I seem to get the most engagement on social media. Just post. I'm sorry, I don't follow you on Instagram. Are you posting photos of the book? Every time I've posted something about the book, I just get like a ton of likes and comments. And Great. Yeah. And so what, is, what does success look like? I asked you when you came in, are you checking your Amazon ranking sort of hourly? Is that is that the main barometer you're going to look at for the next couple of weeks? Well, for now it is because it's the most kind of instant gratification. Once I start getting actual numbers, one thing I learned is that um, – pre-order numbers, if someone orders a book from like an independent bookstore, that will count in your ultimate uh, sales total, but it doesn't count as a pre-order. So presumably some people have ordered it through there. Um, And, you know, once we start actually selling, I will get real updates. Um, But for now, yes, Amazon is kind of the gauge. And and how, I mean, so you've got a full-time job at BuzzFeed, great work there. Is the idea that at some point, you will be able to become a full-time fiction writer and that will be your real job. If I was doing air quotes, I would do air quotes around real. Or is you, this is always going to be something you sort of dip in and out of? You know, I think there is a, there's like a romantic fantasy of becoming a full-time fiction writer. I honestly don't know how realistic that is. I guess we'll kind of see how this book does. Uh, you know, if it does okay, I think I'll be like, okay, that was a cool experience. Maybe I'll write another book at some point, but I'm not going to kind of give this my all. Talk about the podcast for a minute. Ooh, sure. I hate talk about questions. Sorry. But I just did one. Matt and Dory's Excellent Adventure. Yes, that's about EGG. You trying to get pregnant. <laughs> yes. This seems like the kind of thing that you're sitting around, maybe the drinks are involved, and you go, this would be an awesome podcast. Sounds like a great idea. The next day you sober up and say, I think we should still do it. It'd be funny. And then at some point you go, oh, wow, we got to keep doing these weekly. Because so this, by the way, this is you literally talking about IVF cycle yes. and yes. insurance. And yes. And we, everything, in, everything in between. Yeah. So we started it uh, in October and we do it weekly. And the way it started is my husband had done – there was an episode of the Nerdist podcast uh, from Comic-Con last year. So last July. Um, where and your husband does podcasts for a living, right? Uh, no, he's a, he's yeah, he's a TV writer. He okay. writes for the Goldbergs on ABC, but he also does a James Bond podcast and a Star he Trek does podcast podcasts for fun. Yes, and he's a nerd like most exactly. podcasters. Exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, he's on the Nerdist, <laughs> um, and they had talked about. Matt had talked about doing IVF, and I should also say Matt has always been. I think because he's he's a stand up. He stand-up comedian, he has always been very open about kind of talking about the struggles in his life and kind of minds it for comedy. So you became part of that. Yes. And I was like... Could you sign on for that? Well, he asked me if it was yeah. okay. And I said, you know what? It's fine. Um, and then once he started talking about it, all of these people kind of came out of the woodwork. And I started seeing like men on Twitter tweeting at him being like, hey, man, like, thanks for talking about it. Like my wife and I went through it. And... I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. And I was like, wow, like, this is crazy. So I said to Matt, let's do a podcast about this. And he was he was reluctant. He was like, I don't need another podcast, <laughs> much less one with my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, why don't you put it out on Twitter, do a Twitter poll and ask your followers if we should do it. And he did it. And it was 80-20 in favor of doing it. And so he was like, fine. Um, but it's actually been great. It's been kind of, It's been very therapeutic. Um, yeah, that was my other question is, 
working with your spouse for an hour plus it a week seems like not great. Honestly, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. Um, it feels like we get this time to just talk to each other in a way that you don't really get. Like we're not on our phones. We're not watching TV. We're not doing anything else. We, we are just talking to each other about our feelings, um, which is kind of a luxury and things, something that people pay a lot of money for. Yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, so I'm trying to figure out how you meet. So would you charge your listeners or, or your listener, you pay your listeners? Out <laughs> for how, couples therapy, yeah, exactly. Um, we we probably should. <laughs> um, yeah, it's great. It's it's. I mean, podcasting is intimate, and then listening to a couple talk about their medical journey together is about as intimate as it gets. Yeah, what's been crazy too is the number of people who email us who say, you know, I'm not going through IVF. I'm a single 23-year-old, but it's just so interesting to hear a married couple talk about this stuff. And that's been really interesting to me. And also raising that awareness of IVF for people saying, oh, you know, my cousin did this and I had no idea what she was going through. And And so is this meant to be a limited run series? Like at some (laughs) point you're either going to be pregnant and there'll be a kid or you'll decide we're done? So, you know, we kind of naively went into it thinking it would be like an extremely limited run series. Like, oh, of course we'll get pregnant in like, two months. And so it'll just be like an eight, um, eight episode, like mini season. And of course now it's, you know, six months later, we're still going. Um, I'm not pregnant. Um, and now we're starting to get people being like, so you guys are still going to do this when you're pregnant, right? And I am sort of of the let's cross that bridge when we get to it mentality. Um, I could see us still doing it, but I don't. Then it becomes a very different podcast. Then it becomes a kid podcast. Yes. And it's like, do... Do I want to go there? I don't know. That's what Facebook is for, is to post photos of the kids. Yeah. Get your likes. And there's already some, like, really great parenting podcasts. Um, I don't listen to them because I'm not a parent, but, like, I know people really like, like, Longest Shortest Time. And there's there's other podcasts about I cannot imagine listening to a them. parent. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't speak to them because I don't listen to them. But, um, yeah, I mean, I also, you know, I also don't know how I will feel about writing about my kids and this is the same kind of thing. Like, I don't want them to feel like their lives have been dissected in the public eye from the time that they were literally born. And we're already talking about them before they're even in my... St- I don't know. It's it's weird. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about less weird stuff. Let's okay. talk about Gawker. How many Gawker editors have I interviewed? Three? Yes. A bunch. You're one of them now. Yes. I met you when you were at the Observer, so that was post-Gawker? That was post-Gawker, So yeah. you, you got out of school, you went somewhere in the Northeast? Um, yeah, I went to Penn. Penn. Um, and then I kind of farted around in grad school for a few years, quit grad school, worked at Philadelphia Weekly for a couple of years. Uh, so you were one of those people who thought, oh, I'm going to get into magazines and journalism and... yeah. Yeah, so... When I wor- magazines and journalism were still a thing. Yeah, when you... When, like, working at an alt-weekly was a thing that you did before you got your like big job in at a national publication. So I worked at Philadelphia Weekly and then I went to Columbia Journalism School. They were starting their MA program the year that I went and they gave us scholarships and a stipend. Um, I know I was like, oh, that's a, that's a racket. Um, so when people ask me like, you went to journalism school, should I go to journalism school? I'm the like, is no. Yeah. I'm like, don't uh, do it. Uh, I don't have $70,000 in debt from journalism it's school. It's the best <laughs> advice I ever got from undergraduate, from my, from my entire undergraduate journalism career. 
career is the wrong word. But I had a professor who said, do not go. Take whatever money you would spend yes. on going to school and move to New York or wherever you want to move. Right, right. Don't do it. So anyway, I I went because it was free. Um, and then I – after Columbia, I started working at Gawker. And, and, and so were you number two? Which, which in the order of Gawker editors? So we were right after Jessica and Jesse – Alex Balk had already been working there, and then they decided to bring on um, Emily Gould and me, um, and they also brought on Chris Moni to edit. So this is when Gawker was still very much a New York media sniping yes. at Condé Nast. Yes. In fact, I remember there was like an infamous, in my mind, episode where I wanted to write a post about... Barbara Bush being drunk at like a tailgate party at Yale. There were these like pictures that had been circulating. And I remember Moni was like, mm, this isn't New York. It's not New York. This isn't no. media. Like I just don't if think If she got this drunk is... at Freeman's, you could write about that, but not. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think Freeman's open at the time. But uh, yeah, like he was like, mm, this isn't, this isn't. So how do you us. get that job? Do you volunteer for it? Does someone does Nick Denton pluck you out of obscurity? So I so right after the summer after journalism school, I got a paid internship at Slate, and I was writing for them. And I um, I also knew Kate Lee, uh, who used to be an agent at ICM. We went to college together, and she knew all. Of, she knew like Lockhart and her specialty was sort of like the New York blogging. Yes, her specialty was the blogging world, um, and she knew Locke. And another guy I had worked with at Radar, where I interned at journalism school, Remy Stern, who now like runs the Post Digital Operations, yeah. he also was friendly with Locke. And Locke had sent around an email saying, hey, we're looking for new editors. Um, and both Remy and Kate sent it to me and were like, are you interested in this? And I was like, Yeah. Um, and was your thought, this will be a fun thing to do as I continue my ascent up to traditional journalism and then one day I'm going to go back to Con- – I'm going to go to Condé Nast or wherever and get a real job? Or do you think, no, this is this is an actual career now? I think I thought this was an actual career now. I remember getting brunch with Julia Turner who I'd worked with at Slate, who's now editor-in-chief of Slate, and kind of asking her if I should take the job. And she was like, yes, you should take the job. Um, and, you know, Gawker was still – considered sort of like renegade at the time um, and sort of uncharted territory, but it seemed really exciting to me. And everyone in media read it. And everyone in media read it. And it seemed, you know, I was so enamored with New York and New York media at the time. And it just seemed like such a fun way to get into it. And then after that, you were at The Observer. That's when I met you. And yes. The Observer was still The Observer or a version of The Observer. Yeah, was Peter was still editing like it. Like the sophisticated version of Gawker. Yeah, I mean, Jared had bought it. So okay. it was already starting so to change. For Jared I worked Kushner. for Jared Kushner. He had bought it in 2006, and I started working there in the fall of 2007. Um, but Peter was still in charge. So, it, yeah, it still had the kind of DNA of the original Observer. Did you get any Jared Kushner time? You know, it's funny. Two different uh, former Observer colleagues recently have emailed me this picture from our holiday party from 2007 of me and Jared at the Waverly Inn. Waverly Inn? Beatrice Inn. It was at the Beatrice Inn. And, yeah, I was like, oh, my God. Thanks for this. Please don't post this on social media. Um, yeah. But you haven't done a, I work for Jared Kushner and he is or is not qualified to. 
I seem to be the brokered only brokered Middle East peace yeah. and reformed the federal government. And I seem to be the only the former observer uh, writer who. Hasn't we can done change that, that today. <laughs> We can we can turn this into a post about that. So you don't have the shivers when you watch John Oliver talking about Jared Kushner or whoever else. It's just uh, back of your head. I'm not a fan. Not a fan. I'll leave it at that. Deal. And then you bounced around. Uh, you went to Rolling Stone. I remember writing about you going to BuzzFeed. There was a period where BuzzFeed wanted, in my mind, wanted to signify that it was a real publication, mm-hmm. capital P, and so it would go hire people who had a, mm-hmm. some sort of track record. You were one of those mm-hmm. people. I assumed that you and everyone else in that group would cycle out. And mm. not stay at mm-hmm, BuzzFeed because mm-hmm. turns out they wanted you to make listicles mm-hmm. or whatever they wanted to do. But you stuck it out. Mm-hmm. It's worked out. Yeah. I was just reading something you wrote the other day about um, becoming a, a bad manager. Uh-huh. So you were a writer. You were writing culture stuff. And then at some point, you became a editor. No. Yeah. Um, so the, or the you piece, brought in as a manager. The pe- yeah. So the piece I wrote was about uh, wanting to be a cool boss and kind of failing at it and being – and finding myself becoming like very insecure about not being able to be friends with my coworkers because I was now their boss. This is the first time you'd been a manager. It was manager, the first right? time I'd been a manager and it really kind of threw me. Um, but yes, I was hired to be a manager. I was hired to be the executive editor of BuzzFeed by Ben Smith. And so I was sort of like thrown into that. And so how do you prep to become a manager? If you're a writer, yeah. in my mind, you kind of work on your own a lot. Right. That's you flip that over if you're a manager, right? You have to deal with lots of people. Were you conscious of that going in? Like, all right, this is a radically different thing. I have to rethink what I'm doing. Or do you, because there's a path, right, that lots of people yeah, take. Yeah, sure, sure. You're a successful writer, and then you become an editor or manager. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to think that you'll become a successful editor or manager if you've been a successful writer. There's really different skill sets. Totally. And no one tells you that. Um, but just prior to being at BuzzFeed, when I was at Rolling Stone, I was an editor. Um, so I was not really writing that much. So I was already used to kind of like managing and that's in quotes, uh, freelancers. And there was one staffer who I, who I managed, but I wasn't really a manager in the same way that I became one at BuzzFeed. And I kind of naively went into it thinking like, well, I've had managers. Right. (laughs) So therefore I how long did it take you to learn? Oh, um, it was, you know, The first few months were so insane and go, go, go. And we were hiring a gajillion people. And I did not have a second to kind of stop and take my breath. And so it wasn't until probably like a year in when like people had had been there for a little while and there were starting to be like issues. Just, you know, of course there were issues. Issues come up all the time um, at any place. And I was like, oh, I don't really know how to deal with this stuff. So that was probably And did you raise my... your hand and say, can I get some help? I think I didn't really know that I didn't know how to deal with it. And then after, I forget when, but they got a bunch of us um, like management coaches and like did try to kind of teach us some management stuff. And that was actually super helpful. Yeah. But I think that also kind of crystallized for me that I didn't this want to be a me. manager. Yes. Yeah, I've done it a couple times <laughs> with varying degrees of, of mediocrity and it, it does a couple of things. I think it makes you a better employee if you ever totally. go back and do it because you're like, oh, totally. this is what I was doing that was driving my boss yes. nuts. <laughs> and it's really easy to fix, actually. Yes. <laughs> and it makes you understand why everyone on the plane is reading Who Moved My Cheese or whatever totally. the management tome is because it turns out it's really hard and there's no natural way to yes. sort of get better at it. Yes. You know, it's funny. I got, um, an, I got an email from Peter Stern at Politico the other day and he said, hey, um, I read your 
piece about bosses on the cut, and I just want to let you know that, you know, I, I wrote about when you stopped being an editor, when you became a writer, and I just assumed you had been demoted, but now I understand. And <laughs> Yeah, no, I wanted to ask you about that. So, so you're not an editor now. Right. You went to become a writer. Yeah. And it seems clear to me why you did that, right? Yeah. And not, especially now that you've written about it, right? Yeah. You manage and you didn't like it, and yeah, you raised yeah. your hand and said, I want to write. Yeah. Normal people don't get off that path on their own. Right. And if they do, they don't stick around at the place they were managing. Totally. Because it's always going to be viewed as a demotion. So how, right. did you, how did you handle that? And by the way, were you the one who raised your hand? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that I had kind of built up some social capital there. And then I also think, you know, Ben – framed it really honestly and nicely when he sent out an email to the staff and just said, and he was able to point to a couple of pieces that I had written recently that had done really well and people really liked. Um, I wrote this profile of this Instagram star named Brock O'Hearn. Was it the Fabio Instagram yes. dude? That was a great piece. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so I'd just written that and it was sort of like, you know, Dory wants to do this. And everyone internally was super supportive and enthusiastic but yeah, externally, I'm sure people were sort of like, huh, what? Or like thought that there was something to be read between the lines. Right, because it's kind of the equivalent of wants to spend more time with the family, totally. right? Like, sure, maybe even you do want to spend more time totally. with the family, but you also have been fired totally. or whatever. Totally. So and look, I get that. And when I responded to Peter, I was like, you know, uh, thank you for admitting, you know, that you were skeptical. I would have been skeptical too. Because yeah, if you're, if you're a media reporter and you see that, you're sort of like, hmm, what's really going on here? But uh, sometimes that is what's really going on there. And do you ever have an itch to go, all right, I'm, I know I'm writing my Instagram star profiles, but I, I do have some insight here. I should go tell Ben Smith or whoever my boss is how they could fix this problem or that problem, or are you removed? I have really tried to remove myself. It took me a few months to get used to the idea that I was not in the loop anymore. And then I realized that that was very liberating. And so I have really tried to not get involved. I, I sort of like my, my kind of like rule for myself is I only get involved when asked. <laughs> um, you know, if, if Ben or someone else asks me, you know, do you have thoughts about X, Y, Z, which has happened a couple times, like I will give them honest feedback, but I'm not really raising my hand. Most of the time you're typed, you go into the office or you're, you moved to LA, you've done the yeah. New York to LA yes. writer thing, yeah. found another writer and married. Yes. Are you going into the office? Or are you sitting I go into the of? office most days. Um, but, and you're generally writing long form features, right? Yeah. I've been doing some cultural criticism. Actually on May 8th, I'm switching teams. I'm going to the tech team. I'm going to be writing about the LA startup. Oh, that's good. Tech world. A lot of Snapchat. A lot of Snapchat, a lot of Whisper, a lot of Tinder, a lot of Grinder. Oh, you got another good book coming. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that just seemed that seemed kind of like a natural move. So I start that when I get back from my book tour. Well, good for them and for you for figuring out that. That's a good move. Thank you. I'm looking forward to reading that. We did the book. We did the podcast. BuzzFeed. What, yeah. else, what are we missing? David Carp profile. You can go read the David Carp profile. It's good. It's my, it's my best achievement in journalism. Yeah, giving, Peter told me I should profile David Carp when I I'm, was at the Observer. I have excellent advice for other people to follow. Indeed. Um, not myself so much. <laughs> Are we missing anything? Go buy the book. You'll be listening to this on a Thursday. You can 
basically the reason you want people to order the book now is because it'll give you a bump in sales that has tangible benefits for you if I order it this week as opposed to a month from now, right? Yeah. I mean, so the book came out Tuesday, uh, April 25th, and it's good to have a bump in sales the first week. I will just leave it at that. You leave it at that. <laughs> you can buy a swimming pool if it does well enough? Uh, sure. Yeah. I'd love a swimming pool. That sounds really good. I'd like to have enough space for a swimming pool. Thanks, Dory. Good luck with everything. Thanks so much, Peter. This was so fun. Thanks to you guys for listening. We keep making this stuff for free, so you can listen to it. You like it. That's great. It's a great feedback loop. The only thing we ask is that you subscribe or at least rate and review us. All those things help us. Those are good bumps for us. You can go listen to awesome interviews we've done with people like Derek Thompson, Lydia Polgreen, who now runs HuffPo. That's not Huffington Post anymore. It's HuffPo. Jessica Cohen, formerly of Gawker. Mashable. You can go look at all this stuff on iTunes or wherever you listen to find podcasts like this. Kara Swisher also does Recode Decode, and Lauren Good does Too Embarrassed to Ask. Go listen to all of those. Thanks to all of our awesome sponsors. We appreciate your business. We appreciate the fact that we can bring this podcast to you guys for free. Thanks to Art of Shaving, Willis Towers, Watson, and HostGator. Thanks to Digital Media for selling those ads so we can bring this podcast to you for free. Thanks to my excellent producers, Beth O'Connell, Eric Johnson. Chris Basil edits this thing, so if it sounds good, thank Chris. Thanks to you guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>